Freelancers. I'm Alison Southwick, joined as always by Roberto Brocampo, personal finance experto here at the Motley Pool. Oh, hi, bro. <laughs> Greetings to one and all. In this week's episode, we're going to learn how to thrive at work amidst the great resignation. Bro explains how the work to retirement ratio determines how much you need to save, and we'll answer a listener question about building up cash amidst a frothy market. All that, and actually, that feels like plenty on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. You may have heard that many Americans haven't saved enough for retirement. Well, here's some recent evidence. Northwestern Mutual surveyed more than 2,000 Americans for the firm's 2021 Planning and Progress Study. And here are the average amounts of retirement savings according to generation. So the millennials, $63,000. Gen X, about $99,000. And the boomers, you know, the people who are close to or in retirement, $139,000. Now, many factors explain this lack of savings, but one is our declining work-to-retirement ratio. It's a concept described in a few articles by Alex Pollack, who is a resident fellow at the R Street Institute, who has also worked at the Treasury Department, the American Enterprise Institute, and the Federal Reserve. As Pollack explained in a handful of articles dating back as far as 2005, the work-to-retirement ratio is essentially how many years someone works for each year of retirement. And to understand how much it's changed, you have to know a few things about the history of retirement. So let's start in 1889, when Otto von Bismarck, the Chancellor of Imperial Germany, created the very first government pension program. And the retirement age was set at 70. Here in America, one of the earliest corporate pension systems was created by the Pennsylvania Railroad in 1900, and the retirement age was also 70, as was the case with many early state pensions. Now, back then, if you reached age 50, your life expectancy was just 72. So if a typical worker began a full-time career at age 16, worked for 54 years to fund two years of retirement, you divide that 54 by 2, and you get a work-to-retirement ratio of 27. So essentially, someone worked 27 years to fund each year of retirement. Now, by the 1950s, according to Pollock, people typically entered the workforce later at age 20, retired sooner at 67, and lived longer, dying at around age 79. So they worked 47 years to fund 12 years of retirement, and now we're down to a work-to-retirement ratio below four. Fast forward to today, and a college graduate begins work at age 22, retires at 63, and lives to 85. That's 22 years of retirement funded by only 41 years of work, a work-to-retirement ratio of less than two. So basically, you're just working two years for every one year of retirement. Now, according to Pollock's calculations, that ratio can almost work if you save more than 14% a year over your career. And that's in line with the general guidance from some of our recent guests, such as Wade File from last week and Roger Young of T. Rowe Price from our September 7th episode. The good news is that many workers are close to this target. According to Fidelity, the average total contribution rate to 401ks held at the firm, including the employer match, was 13.9% as of June. The bad news is that this is an all-time high, which means that most workers have likely been saving less throughout their careers. Also, many workers don't sign up for the 401k as soon as they begin working and consequently don't begin saving until their 30s or later. And then there's the third of private employer workers who don't even have access to a retirement plan, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. So in the calculus of retirement, you have three key variables, when you start working, how much you save, and when you retire. It's likely too late to do anything about that first one. As for the second, saving more always helps, but depending on your age, it may not be enough. That leaves the third, when you retire, as the most significant variable for many Americans. 
Many studies have found that retiring just a few years later can significantly boost your retirement income. And increasing the age of retirement in America would also help the system as a whole, including alleviating some of the problems facing programs like Social Security and many government and private pensions. If you've already retired, it's possible to go back to work. A study from the RAND Corporation found that 40% of workers over the age of 65 had been retired, but then rejoined the workforce. Even part-time work will boost your retirement security. Plus, since wages often rise with inflation, earning even a modest paycheck will build some protection against rising prices into your retirement plan. However, working longer doesn't just have financial benefits. Dr. Laura Karstensen, the director of the Stanford Center on Longevity, was a guest on Morningstar's Longview podcast. And she said, quote, we find that people who are in the workforce do better cognitively as they age than people who retire early. So I'll close this segment with a personal note. In the past few weeks, my wife Elizabeth and I have celebrated two milestones, 22 years of marriage and Elizabeth earning her PhD after three years of work. And at age 51, Elizabeth is beginning a brand new career as a college professor. And getting degrees later in life kind of runs in her family. Her mother earned a master's degree at age 72 while also operating her own used bookshop in a Virginia beach town. So does the idea of going back to school, beginning a new career, or starting a business excite you? Do you like your current job but would value doing it less as you get older? Maybe you like your job, but you just need a break and could take a sabbatical and, and kind of get a, a measure of rejuvenation. Have you already retired but miss working? And do you have other ideas for replacing the benefits, financial and otherwise, that a career provides? These are all crucial questions, really, that should be a part of any financial plan. As Alex Pollock wrote in one of his articles, quote, How many years can you afford to play without working, to consume without producing? If you retire at 63 and live to 85, you'll have been retired for a quarter of your life. Should you live to 95, instead, you will have been retired for a third of your life. On average, that cannot work financially. When I grow up, I want to file all day. I want to claw my way up to middle management. Be replaced on a whim. I want to have a brown nose. I want to be a yes man. Yes woman. Yes sir. Coming sir. Anything for a raise sir. When I grow up. When I grow up. I want to be underappreciated. Be paid less for doing the same job. I want to be forced into early retirement. That was from an award-winning Monster.com ad from 1999. Do you remember it? I do. As Adweek wrote, probably nothing will ever match that kid's fierce proclamation, I want to claw my way up to middle management. And as someone just starting out in my career when it aired in 1999, I remember thinking, wait, am I just like that kid ruthlessly clawing my way to middle management? So more than 20 years and one pandemic later, what has changed? Are we all still clawing our way to middle management to be a yes man or yes woman? Or is the great resignation changing all that? Joining me today to answer that question is Kara Chambers. She's the head of people development at The Motley Fool. Hey, Kara, it's been a while. Hello, Allison. How are you? I'm good. Well, these are exciting times. Yes, they are. Not, not just for us, but also exciting times in the labor market here in the U.S. Some going so far as to call it an existential crisis as record rates of Americans are quitting their job. In fact, according to an August poll by PwC, 65% of employees said they are looking for a new job. And nearly 9 in 10 executives surveyed said that their company is experiencing higher turnover 
than normal. And it's being called the Great Resignation. Kara, what's behind it? Well, it's a lot. It's a lot of uncertainty being lifted just a little bit right now. And people kind of taking stock, they're finding they have more flexibility about where they can live. You kind of strip away the trappings of an office and and you've broken your habits and your patterns and you're starting to look around and, and change your mind. We also, a lot of us had a lot of time on our hands in the past year to think about things. I think all of those things are just coming together and there's more opportunity out in the world uh, for everybody. And companies that aren't paying enough attention to the social connection between their employees that are remote, you don't feel that bond as closely as you would in a job where you would be in the office. So we've seen companies react in different ways here. Some companies, and again, we're largely talking about companies where employees can work at a desk, they're embracing change and giving employees more freedom, whereas other companies are calling employees back, saying they aren't as productive if they aren't in the office. Right. And that's what we're hearing. We're seeing the bigger brands like Apple and Google. They're getting pushback from their employees where they're saying um, they're being very strict. You, you have to come in three days a week and we want you back in the office. These are companies that have invested in big campuses for their employees. They want them on site. They believe in that in-person collision. Meeting with each other is very valuable to innovation at work. So they're they're going all in, even though they're allowing flexibility, it's still going to be in a very structured way. Three days a week, that means you still need to live near the office. You still need to follow their guidelines. It changes every day what they're actually doing with the Delta variant and everything like that. But again, the message I'm hearing is we want our employees back in the office and we've invested in this. And they're getting some pushback, which is why the headlines are talking a lot about the great resignation, right? Like now that I've had all this flexibility, I don't I don't want to give it up. It's more nuanced than that in real life, but that's generally the message I'm seeing in the headlines. But then there are other companies that are saying, okay, yeah, let's go fully remote. Let's do this. Complete distributed workforce. Yep. Yep. Like um, we're, we've seen Dropbox and Shopify, virtual first or digital by design. It's very intentional. We don't want you coming to the office unless it's for a very specific reason. Maybe it's to brainstorm, it's to meet, but generally you're supposed to be at home otherwise. And so you've got flexibility, you can travel in. There's no expectation for you to come to the office. These happened early in the pandemic. I want to say like May 2020, those were decisions that were clearly made early on of how their office would do a 180 and change. Um, And it's still up in the air about whether they'll work or not, but they're appealing. They've got, again, that nice mix of both coming together and working in a distributed way, having that flexibility. And then finally, on the flip side, there's companies like Automatic that have been virtual all along. And they they take a lot of pride in being a virtual company where you can live anywhere and work anywhere. And they, they really build a lot of their employment brands around that. So they've never had an office. So you've got kind of three different buckets. And the pandemic just forced everybody into one bucket uh, this past year. And so we're looking to see kind of how, how things change uh, over the next year as people start returning a little bit more to normal. So what does the great resignation mean for someone um, who does have a, a desk job, who maybe now has a few more opportunities about what they can do and where they do it from? Right. So we think uh, if you're listening to this podcast, we're guessing you're someone who invests in your career capital. You want to be out there being competitive for the types of jobs that will be valuable to you. So you'll have some choices and the choices are going to be different. There's different calculus about where you work. So I'll talk about kind of three different buckets. One is where, right? I, I, I've heard the term Zoom town, right? You want to move out of your really expensive city and, and do a cheaper one so you can work remotely. That's not uncommon. 
But thinking about what that really means for you, are you going to be the only remote worker on your team if a company allows that? Where are you going to be spending your time? If you're investing in new space, you probably don't want to like four roommates around a kitchen table. And then so thinking about how you do your work during the day is is just going to be a different calculation for everybody now. And then I think it's slower than people think. Everybody's not going to flee all at once. People have children and spouses that have schools and different jobs. So you're just watching a slow shift over time. But you know, if you're out in the world, you're going to be looking for companies that could offer you that flexibility, but there's some trade-offs to go with it. The other trade-off I think about is when you work. There's terms called synchronous and asynchronous work. That means uh, how much you're going to have to be on meetings. Are they going to be in your time zone? Are they going to be at weird hours? You'll have to put some extra effort into thinking about that when you're collaborating with people around the world. It's a different way of working than being in the office. You know, a lot of companies, we went into the pandemic, we took our workday approach, which is meetings during nine to five-ish. And then we just did those remotely, regardless of where everybody started living and how their life changed over time. But that probably doesn't work in the long term. And, and people are starting to learn that. So paying attention when you're out there looking for a new job or you're trying to optimize your own job is you don't want to be doing the exact same job you'd be doing in an office the same way. That's just really not going to be helpful. And then finally, really all knowledge work jobs are a mixture of heads down work and collaborative work. The mix is different for everybody. And, and a lot of advice I give fools that I coach is even pre-pandemic, people would come to me and say, working remotely is so productive for me. And we'll say, well, yes, but you work with other people. And so just working on your collaboration skills, writing skills are going to become really important. Your ability to communicate with other people, document your work, all the stuff that seems less exciting to you now, that's just getting more and more and more important um, as a skill to build. Your technical skills will also become more important using Zoom and all the collaborative software that's out there. So I think there's just going to be different things to look at. You'll have more choice, but because our jobs vary so widely and everyone's living situation is going to vary widely, you're going to be throwing in a lot more variables and and none of them are going to be perfect. If everyone's resigning, then I imagine as a manager, the best thing you can do is try to figure out how you can retain the best people that you love on your team. So what's your advice for managers? So I would say the first thing is, um, you know, we talk about trust in, in management. We, we think about how a lot of the headlines are saying managers are demanding employees come back to the office to see them working. That didn't work pre-pandemic. That was probably a bad idea, even if they did require you to come to the office. So if you're that type of manager that wanted to physically see someone in their cubicle or at their desk, you probably weren't very effective before. Uh, again, if you're listening, you probably want to be better. Um, so just leaning into that over communication, documenting things again, that sounds super boring, but there's not that side of your desk, reading your facial expressions, dropping by conversations. So giving people flexibility, being super clear. That's the number one training we're looking at for managers this year is being super clear about things because it's a lower bandwidth style of communication. Like your highest bandwidth is in-person, one-on-one talking. And then a little bit below that is maybe your phone or your Zoom. And then a little bit below that is a Slack conversation. You just start losing a signal each time you go. Your job as a manager is to figure out what to use for what. And also it helps to get to know people, what their hours are like, what stresses them out, spending some time. I love this phrase, small talk isn't small. So joining your Zoom calls early and making some small talk and checking in with people as humans. We tried this on our team once where 
everybody uh, who joined the call, you had to greet the next person by name. So you weren't just a bunch of non-human Zoom squares. You just got like each person that joined, uh, you greeted them by name. It just adds to the humanity. So you don't feel like you're speaking to and living in a screen every day. The best advice I give everybody is don't transplant everything you did in an office to Zoom. It, it, it doesn't work that way. So we're all just kind of navigating new ways of working. What helped us is that we had to all tolerate it because it was forced on us by a pandemic. So now that we have a little more choice, you'll we'll all start learning a little bit about work, what works better for us and what works better for other people. So it'll, it'll start cleaning up, I think, over time. We talked a lot about work that can actually be done remotely, right? Because you're largely sitting in front of a computer. But much of the great resignation is happening with people who are in service industries, something you can't do in Zoomtown. So the highest quits rates in June, for example, were in accommodation, food service, leisure, hospitality, and retail. And some people say that these jobs are at risk of being automated, like with self-checkout lines. Um, And I saw an article about a restaurant here in D.C., they couldn't hire enough servers to wait tables. So they just got rid of all their servers. And now if you go to their restaurant, you find a table, you order from your phone, and then someone just drops off your order. So how much do you see automation as being a threat? I mean, we've been automating all along. Um, I, I heard one of my colleagues went to a conference and they talked about like 50 years ago, everybody sitting at a desk is basically one cell in a spreadsheet 50 years ago with a pencil. And, and a calculator, maybe not even. And so it's just work getting more and more efficient. It, it isn't suddenly replaced overnight. As long as you're developing your skills and you're getting better as you go, someone's going to have to teach the robots. Uh, that's what I keep saying. Teach the machines what to do. And, and there's a, a, a book I really liked. Uh, it was 15 years ago by Dan Pink that talks about this. And there are six things robots can't do. As far as we know right now, I know Alexa's listening to me. But one is empathy, right? Every Any job requiring empathy is not going to be replaced by a robot because we're humans and we're social creatures and, and you need that, whatever you're working with. So we'll always be better. Second is beautiful design. People always appreciate beautiful design and it can't quite be done by robots just yet. So there's that. Humans like a sense of play. You know, that sense of play and amusement. I'm so sorry. That's okay. We got dogs in Zoomtown. We got dogs in Zoomtown. Uh, yes. Yeah, so someone wants to play. You can, you can put that in there. Um, and then story, right? Building a narrative is not something a robot can really do. And, and right now. And so those are some things. And then finally creating a sense of meaning and symphony of bringing like two disparate things together. Like those are some things, again, the book is called a whole new mind. It was written 15 years ago, but I picked it up last night and I was like, this was correct. Those are skills. I think you want to be building in your own career, they're not going away anytime soon. And again, I think about those desks of people with a calculator turning into one little cell in Excel, and it's just getting more and more efficient. It didn't, you know, jobs didn't go away. As long as you're developing your skills, they're not going to go away overnight unless you really just didn't pick your head up over time. So I'm less worried. I think we're just getting get more and more efficient. That's one thing I've noticed over and over again is that the pandemic's effects on industries um, and now labor, like even here we're seeing this, is largely the pandemic just sped up those trends that were already happening. And we're seeing it here with this great resignation. The quits rates have actually been rising for the last decade. Um, And in fact, when you look at the sheer numbers, way more people quit their job in August of 2019 than in April of 2021, Mm -hmm. right before the phrase the great resignation was even coined. Um, So 
The Great Resignation. It makes for a wonderful headline that we're all clicking on. But ultimately, is it here to stay? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? Kara, bring us home. I think it's a good thing. I think anything that gives, um, that encourages companies to compete for better talent is is better for everybody. At The Motley Fool, we always believe treating your employees well is good business. It is not a trade-off. And so those companies, we can imagine the companies that stay ahead, they're treating their employees well, they're caring, they're they're looking ahead. They're going to be able to attract the best talent and run the best business. And and so that that to me is good for all of us. Kara, thank you so much for joining us. I can't wait to have you back whenever we have another workplace trend to talk about. Thanks, Wolves. It's time for Answers, Answers. Well, normally under Answers, Answers, Allison reads the question and then I do the answer. But this time I'm going to read the question and I'm going to get some help with the answer from Ron Gross, former hedge fund manager and now a senior advisor and the director of operations for US investing here at The Motley Fool. Ron, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, bro. Answers, answers. Does that mean I have to be twice as good as if it was just answers? We asked you on because we knew you would be twice as good, Ron. <laughs> That's a lot of stress, a lot of pressure. I'm up for it. Let's do All it. Right. So our question this week comes from Pat. And Pat asks, if we can assume that the market is currently overvalued, what are your thoughts on taking some money out of the market and setting this cash aside for investing during a downswing? If you're in favor of doing this, I have a few questions. How frequently would you do it? Is there a percentage of your portfolio you'd recommend pulling out at one time? And how do you decide which holdings to sell? Ron, what do you think? So, bro, here's how I typically do things, which may be a bit different than some. By no means is the only way to think about cash in your portfolio. So, don't say, this is it. Ron says this, and this is the way it's got to be, because it doesn't have to be this way. But this is how I do it. So, each year, I accumulate cash. That's just what I do every single year. I do it as a portion of my 401k contribution. I put all of my wife's 401k contribution into cash. And then sometimes if I have excess cash in the savings account, I'll move that over into a personal brokerage account. So year in and year out, each year, I accumulate cash. When I can find things I want to buy, I put that cash to work. Sometimes I can put it all to work in a given time period. Sometimes I put a portion of it to work. It just depends how readily the ideas are flowing, how good stocks look. Um, and that's not really a market timing comment. It's an individual company comment. Sometimes there's lots of things I want to buy. Other times, not so much. Um, there are times when I accumulate cash for quite a while and don't buy anything. And I mean, sometimes there's been years, I want to say, where, where I've done that. And then the cash just builds up and builds up and builds up. And it makes me a little nervous because I bet statistically, if someone ran the numbers, I would probably be better off being fully invested at all times. Um, but it just, I don't, I don't feel comfortable at certain times putting money into the market. And, and so I sit tight. A relatively conservative way to look at things, perhaps, but. It helps me sleep at night, and and so I'm fine with it. Um, times like right now, where we are in the market, are when I usually sit tight with my cash. Um, things are a bit frothy right now. We've seen a bit of a pullback from the highs, maybe four or five percent, but we see rising interest rates. The ten year around one point five percent. I think it's probably going to go higher. We have inflation concerns. We have supply chain concerns. So I'm not in any kind of you know, really urgent mood to put money to work. So I'm happy to sit with my cash. Cash is a, a, a friend of mine. I'm a big fan of my cash. Um, so the one thing I might do, or a couple things I might do during times like this, is 
rather than sell stocks to de-risk my portfolio, to take risk out of the, my portfolio, I might degrowth it. And by that, I mean, add to something that is other than innovative growth, which I'm heavily invested in, as I would imagine most fools are. So, uh, a few months back, I added um, some industrial stocks, some infrastructure stocks to my portfolio. Certainly not the sexiest of stocks in the world, but it probably, again, if somebody ran the, the actual numbers for me, it probably de-risked my portfolio, so I wasn't as heavily invested in high-growth stocks. Um, so, these are kind of the some, some of the things I do. I'll just quickly mention, you know, I usually do this anyway, but especially during times where I think maybe the market's frothy. Again, PE ratio forward, PE ratio right now about 22 times, um, pretty historically high. Um, and I mentioned a lot of the other factors such as interest rates um, and inflation concerns. I'll look at my portfolio and I'll make sure that I'm happy with every stock in that portfolio. I also own ETFs. I largely ignore those. I'm not going to say whether I'm happy with the S&P 500 or the Russell 2000. That would be more of a market timing concept, which I'm not really going to do. But I will look and say, huh, I see I own Facebook. There's a lot going on with Facebook right now. Maybe I'm not so happy with what's going on with Facebook right now. Maybe I don't want to be an owner anymore. Now, that's not a recommendation for or against. It's just something that I'm highlighting that's going on in the news right now as an example of Maybe I'm going to take a look at my portfolio and see, am I happy with everything that I own? And then finally, times like these where the market is a little bit frothy, I will make sure that I don't have any money in the market that I will need for the next three years. Sometimes we say three to five. I lean towards the three for me personally. And a real-life example is recently I realized I did not have the final one and a half years of my son's college tuition out of the market. So I simply sold stocks and, and raised cash. And now I can feel better that if the market continues to go down four, five, six, ten percent, don't have to worry about his college. Right, because he's I, in college right now. So he's in college money. right now, uh, yeah. one and a half years left. I don't have to worry about uh, raising the cash to pay that tuition. I've got cash on the sidelines for investing purposes because, as I said, I accumulate it just naturally. So if the market goes down five, ten percent, I can then probably put some money to work more readily um, than than what I see available to me now. And so th that works for me. I will say there probably is nothing wrong with being fully invested at all times. right? If, if you don't want to play games, you don't want to have to say, how much cash do I want to have? What's appropriate? If you don't even want to be accused of market timing, um, you probably would be fine to just stay the course. Right now, I'm about 5% cash. Um, I'm fine with that. I would not typically ever be 20 25% cash. That would probably be too conservative. Um, but 5% is good for me right now in this environment. So I do something somewhat similar, whereas I, I, I determine how, what I'm going to do with my dividends based on overall market valuation. So, yeah. you know, back in 2017 or so, 18, I stopped reinvesting dividends, letting them accumulate in cash. And then I also sort of developed a, a watch list of stocks I would like to buy if they became cheaper. So, during March of 2020, when everything went down, I bought some stocks. Disney, a stock that I had long wanted to own, finally bought that. Mm -hmm. um, when I was thinking about how to answer Pat's question, I would think a lot would obviously de determine how close he or she is to retirement. Yeah. Um, 
Pat doesn't say, but you and I are of the same age, early 50s, at a time of life when people start thinking, all right, maybe, maybe it's time to start thinking of de-risking a little bit. Have you thought about when you're going to start setting your portfolio up for retirement? I have actually recently started thinking quite a bit about it, so it's it's an opportune time to ask me that question. I don't think personally until I'm closer to 60. I I think I will remain 100% stocks minus whatever cash I have up until around 60 and then I will probably start to get more conservative and and put in something other than equities. You know, bonds are the typical thing that's other than equities. Um, we'll see where interest rates are at the time. Um, I'll start to kind of bleed in um, some some non-equity investments into my portfolio. But I think I've got a good five years of, of, of being all equities for now. Another f- a thing I would suggest that people think about is tax loss harvesting, as you think about maybe taking some stocks, uh, out, out money out of stocks, put it into cash. People often don't think of tax loss harvesting until the end of the year, but actually now is a good time. Market was down five percent last year. About a hundred of the S and P five hundred stocks are actually down for the year, and some stocks are down big. Zoom is down, I think, forty percent. Teladoc fifty percent. Clorox is down thirty percent from its high. Sure. Um, so that would also be another place to look if you want to de-risk a little bit and add a little bit more to your cash. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I will say, if I sell a stock for whatever reason, I would prefer to sell it in a retirement account, so there's no capital gains tax consequences. But using my Facebook example, if I own Facebook in a non-retirement account and I think it's time to let it go, then so be it. I'll take my lumps. I'll pay my capital gains taxes. Hopefully, I have capital gains taxes and it's been a profitable investment. Um, Sometimes you just got to kind of pay your lumps, pay the government, take your lumps, pay the government um, and move on. But of course, I'd, I'd rather sell in a retirement account. Got it. Well, excellent advice, Ron. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Robert. Before I say, well, that's the show, I need to thank a few more fools who heard my pleas for help. So thank you, Brian, Scott, Jacob, Kevin, Anthony, Sam, Zachary, Rick, Peter, Brandon, Jake, Paul, Kyle, Jason, Amal, Irina, Aaron, Joey, and Donald. Whew, we have the best listeners. I've said it before. I'll keep saying it. Don't we, bro? We do. Absolutely. Okay, now that's the show. It's edited sweater weatheringly by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Mm-hmm.